Good evening. Welcome. Thank you for coming. I'm so happy to see such a great group. So thank you. I'm Liz Brailsford. I'm president and CEO of the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth. We are in for a treat. I know this is going to be a fabulous program. So we are lucky enough to have the support of Vistra this evening and tomorrow. Thank you very much for your support. You are making this event possible. We appreciate you very much. I'd also like to thank the SMU Center for Presidential History for their promotional partnership, and then also the Warwick uh, Melrose Dallas. It's always great to be here. And if you are not a member of our council yet, and I have spoken to a few of you. Actually, you're not A-plus students. Okay, no, you, 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 uh, join us. I want to see you again. Please join our informed and engaged citizenry. Become a member. You can see all of our options on D at, at our website, dfwworld.org. Uh, so I'd like to welcome Rebecca Kay from Vistra to say a couple of wor uh, words. And thank you so much again. OK. Um, so we have um, enjoyed the programming of the World Affairs Council for many, many years, and um, we were so excited to see um, Will Hurd was going to be on today, and so I got a note from my boss. She said, I hope this is okay, but we are sponsoring this because we like Will Hurd. I was like, I do love Will Hurd. So thank you for giving us that opportunity. Um, our guest today, as I've already mentioned, his name is a Texan, a native Texan, um, a cybersecurity expert, and a former congressman. Um, Will Hurd is currently director of an investment bank, Allen & Company. And after serving in Congress for six years, which I have to say, he represented our solar and battery storage facility out in um, West Texas. So um, we always enjoyed talking to him about that and, um, and our low-income customers and um, was always so appreciative of your time and um, the commitment that you gave to um, our not only our industry, but the people um, who you represented in the district. Um, he's an advocate for bipartisanship. You gained nationwide attention, and I have to admit, I'm glad our CEO didn't come today because um, I sat at my desk and watched when you and Beto O'Rourke went, you know, Facebook Live across the nation um, in 2017 after your flight was canceled that March. Um, so to make sure you could make votes because you wanted that good record of being able to, to say you, you, were, um, you were there and, and, and made those votes. So um, it was so entertaining, but it also really just showed that bipartisanship can exist. Um, and I think in the age of bitter partisanship, it was such a nice refresher, and um, you certainly gained national attention. You got some awards for it, um, and so we, we just enjoyed that, and it really just showed your true character of who you are. Um, while he was in office, impressively, you got I don't know if you even know this, 17 pieces of legislation signed into law. That's six years and 17. 21. 21. <laughs> I, wanted to see, I wanted to see if you really knew. That's right, and you knew. Um, so it's no surprise that Texas Monthly and Politico magazine called you the future of the GOP. With nine years of experience in the CIA, Congressman Hurd used his knowledge of preventing Russian spies from accessing our secrets to help build a cybersecurity company. And Mr. Hurd also speaks Yurda? Urdu. Okay, Urdu, from his time undercover in Pakistan. 
He holds a BS in computer science from Texas A&M and is the author of The American Reboot, um, An Idealist Guide to Getting Big Things Done, um, which we're all going to get a copy of uh, later this evening. Joining us to moderate our conversation is Lee Cullum, a celebrated journalist at Public Media of North Texas and a senior fellow at the John Tower Center for Public Policy and International Affairs at SMU. Lee is a regular commentator on the PBS NewsHour and NPR's All Things Considered, an editorial writer for the Dallas Morning News, and former host of KERA's CEO program. She has served on the board of the Council of Foreign Relations, the American Council on Germany, as well as Freedom House and the Pacific Council on International Policy, among many others. Lee sits on the board of the American Security Project and is a member of the Trilateral Commission. It's my pleasure to welcome both of you um, this evening, Lee Cullum and Will Hurd. And Lee, I hope you're going to ask him if we're going to see him at a picnic in Iowa sometime over the next two years. I'm going to move this back so they can see you on this side, if that's okay. Thank you. Very much, Amanda. Uh, yes, we'll all go to Iowa. If you're in <laughs> Iowa, you tell us. We'll, we'll yeah, be there. Sure, sure. Uh, this is a terrific book. Thank you. Uh, well, I enjoyed it very much. And uh, I want to start off with an Iowa-related question. Uh, there's some talk of your running for president. Mm -hmm. And the interesting thing is you believe that uh, there is a, a whole cadre of what you call normal Republicans, mm -hmm. I might call mainstream Republicans, I think there are quite a few here, uh, who could be lured into the primary and perhaps overcome the, the hammerlock that the Trumpistas have on it now. Uh, I want to know how you intend to do that, but first, how would you de define a normal Republican? It's, it's, it's a good, que no, it's a good, a good question. Um, it is a good question. I was trying to think about it myself. Right. So, so I, I think a normal Republican is somebody who believes in a simple formula. Uh, freedom leads to opportunity. Opportunity leads to growth. Growth leads to progress. And I think a normal Republican is somebody who actually believes in ideological consistency uh, regardless of who's in power, right? And I think a normal Republican is someone who's audio and, and video match, meaning <clears throat> what people say is, is reflected in what they do. Now, that's my definition. There's a lot of people that don't meet those standards, if, and, I, and, I, and if, if, we're, if we're being honest here. Um, but what I have found, and, and I, I knew this when I was in, in the 23rd. For, for those that don't know, uh, Texas 23 was 29 counties, two time zones, 820 miles of the border. It took 10 and a half hours to drive from one corner of the district to the other at 80 miles an hour. That was the speed limit in most of the districts, right? Um, I found out the hard way it's not the speed limit in all of the districts. <laughs> um, and and um, it, it was... And I'm a black Republican, and it was a 71% Latino district. Nobody thought I had a chance. Uh, primaries were difficult enough. Um, Senator Cruz had endorsed an opponent, my opponent. Um, the establishment Republicans were supporting my, my, my opponent. Were they normal? Well, you know, I, yes, to, to, to some extent. <laughs> and and we, were able to, we were able to still win that primary. How? Because we brought new people into the primary election. And, and one, of the, one of the key points in the book that I, I try to talk about 
is that there are a number of generational defining challenges that we need to be addressing in order to ensure America stays the most important economy in the world. But our politics is getting in the way. And it comes down to our primaries. And not to get into too much math on a, what is it, Thursday night, but in the last presidential election, only 34 seats in the House were jump balls. They, they were competitive. That means 92% of House seats were decided in a primary. And the average number of people that voted in that primary, 54,000 people. When, when I and that, that means 26,501 20, people make a decision. When I was student body president at Texas A&M, and I have D, the graduate student there, helping me, um, I got like 17,000 votes, right? Like, like it's, such a small, it's such a small, narrow thing. And so, but there are a lot of people that vote in primaries that don't vote in general elections. And those are the folks that we need to start getting in the primary process, R and D. This is not just a Republican thing. The, the trends happen on, on the Democratic side as well. And those are the people, the silent majority, whatever you want to call it, um, that if we got them more engaged, we would start seeing a, 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 a decrease in this uber-partisanship. Well, you mentioned the math. Let's do a little math. Uh, in your book, I believe you said that about a third of the Republican vote uh, on election day, uh, last November, on November uh, 2020, uh, was, was Trumpista. Uh, that leaves about 50 million who, who were otherwise. Mm -hmm. uh, you, you were one of them, I think. I think you told Judy Woodruff you voted for the nominee of the party. I, I didn't, but You yeah, didn't? No. Oh, okay. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Who did you vote for? I, I uh, wrote in... Um, um, Ian McMullen. No, that was, oh. in, that was in 16. Right. Okay. Ian McMullen was a, a former... A CIA officer. Yeah, he we actually, like a good guy yeah, in Utah. We, no, we, we served together. We served together actually, and so he had my back when I needed it. So I had yeah. his. Um, but Condoleezza Rice is who I oh, uh, wrote in in in. in good for you. We like yeah. that. Mm -hmm. She's a normal Republican. Sure. Yeah. And that, well, but but back to these fifty million. Uh, you've got to get them then in your camp. You have a shot at them. You think sure. they're persuadable. Then you've got to pick up maybe twenty-five or thirty million more. Mm -hmm. uh, well, how many, how many is that per state? Well, of course, some states are bigger than others. But how do you do that? So, so we're getting in the weeds of something that I haven't made plans to do, right? And, and so, so look, if the opportunity comes to run again, I'll evaluate it. Um, but, and, but I think it's also a fool's errand to think about anything other than the current election. Because the, you know, ev this is not the environment going into 2022 what most political prognosticators thought would be go we would be going into, and so thinking about any other election now, I, I think is I think is is, is a silly effort. Um, but for me, it's the focus on putting some of these ideas out there on what we need to do to win. Because here's the reality: in 2022, Republicans are taking the House back. Period. Full stop. Likely to take back the Senate is what most prognosticators believe. And, and Republicans are going to think, look at this, America loves us. That's the wrong lesson. It's Republicans are going to win in 2022 because the American public are, are, are scared of what the Democrats were trying to do. Because neither party learned the lesson from 22, excuse me, from 2020, which was don't be a jerk and don't be a socialist. Republicans try to be bigger jerks. Democrats try to be bigger socialists. 
And we're going to see Republicans uh, take back both of the likely take back both of the houses, at least one. And so, so this, you know, all of these things are, are interrelated. Um, but for me, it's now about making sure and identifying that we need more people voting in primaries. Only 3 million people voted in Texas out of 30 million. And part of that, in my opinion, is because people did not see anything on either side that they cared about. The first time I spoke at um, South by Southwest, the conference down in Austin, um, I was on a panel with a number of YouTube stars. Four of them combined had a billion subscribers on YouTube. I had 60. <laughs> and five of those six, seven of those 60 are in this room tonight, okay? <laughs> and, and one of the people on the panel was the digital director for The Rock, Dwayne Johnson. And this was when the movie Moana was coming out. And she said, if Moana fails at the box office, are we going to blame the consumer, the people going to watch the movies, or are we going to blame the product, the people that produce the movie? And, and obviously, you know, I, you know, Moana was a good movie. Um, it, was, it was successful at the box office. And the, the, the young woman says, only in politics do we blame the consumer, the person, the voter, versus the product, the people that are running for office. And I hope to start seeing different kinds of people running. And, and, and the way I would describe the folks that we need is we need people that are willing to inspire rather than fear monger. And, and that is the only way that we're going to start being able to address many of these crazy challenges that we're faced with in the country. Well, I have a, a weird question, and if you don't want to answer it, just say so. Yeah. Uh, I was on a Zoom call yesterday with some people I didn't know. Uh, one of them was a venture capital guy in New York, seemed very nice. They all knew you. I said, mm -hmm. I'm going to interview Will Hurd tomorrow. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's great. We, we know him. That sounds great. One of them said, please ask him this, and this is the weird question. He said, there is some talk in his circles, and maybe the venture capital circle. We are you know, an investment banker with yeah, a New sure, York firm, sure. so you know what I'm talking about. In any event, there is some talk that with the Republicans taking the House, uh, there evidently, and you would know this better than I would, uh, there is no provision in the Constitution that the Speaker of the House must be a member of the House. Therefore, uh, the master of the manor at Mar-a-Lago might like mm -hmm. to take that job. Uh, now, you don't have to tell me how you feel about that. Would he or wouldn't he? There's no point in speculating about what he would do. But how would your colleagues in the House respond to such an effort? Uh, no, look, th that is going to, that process is going to unfold. Um, Matt Gates from Florida has already said he's nominating Donald Trump for speaker. Marjorie Taylor Greene has already said she's going to second it. And so if Republicans take the House back in, in 2022, I believe it's the, the week before Thanksgiving is when all the newly elected people go to Washington, D.C. to vote for the next round of leadership. And, and it's the, the person's correct. You do not have to be a member of the House to be speaker of the House. Now, um, Donald Trump says he doesn't want the position. And even a big advocate like Jim Jordan has said that Kevin McCarthy is likely to be the, be the, the speaker. But a lot can happen between now and November. Dallas Baptist University is a global, Christ-centered institution whose students are making an impact in business, law, medicine, education, public service, and the list goes on. DBU is honored to sponsor the Global IQ podcast, and to offer a significant scholarship for World Affairs Council members towards a master's in international studies. For further information about this scholarship or about DBU in general, 
email Lee Bratcher at leeb at dbu.edu. I think the idea of Donald Trump being Speaker of the House is absolutely ridiculous. Um, and I don't think he's going to be able to get the 218 votes that are required to, to, um, to um, become Speaker of the House, but it will be. And, and this is what's going to happen. After winning and, and being excited we take things back, there's going to already be an inter-Republican an inter battle um, about, uh, about, this, about, this particular, about this particular issue. So that will go down in November. Again, I don't think he gets the 218 votes. Um, but that conversation will happen. Well, you'll make my new friend in New York very happy. He said, sure. we want Will Hurd on the record saying this, so here we yeah. are. Yeah. Uh, now, let's turn to uh, the very uh, heartbreaking and terrible situation mm -hmm. in Ukraine. Uh, you say in your book that we should be doing more, and we should be doing more militarily. Mm -hmm. What do you have in mind? Look, um, I have, I've been associated with the national security community for over 21 years. And one of the things that I learned, whether it was recruiting spies and selling secrets or um, overseeing the intelligence community on the House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence or building a, a cybersecurity company that was defending public, the private sector against, against nation state attacks. Um, my philosophy on foreign policy is simple. Your friends should love you and your enemies should fear you. This is a whole section of, of my book where I go into that. And so let's look at President Zelensky of Ukraine. The fact that he's saying there's more that we can be doing, we should, we should be giving them as many heavy weapons as the Ukrainians can use, period, full stop. And the, the uh, you know, uh, opponents of that is going to say, well, this is going to escalate. Well, the same people said giving javelins and other equipment to the Ukrainians in 2015 was going to escalate that conflict. It's the same people that said if we do sanctions um, at the beginning of this year, that that's going to cause the, the Russians to go into to go into into Ukraine further, and we cannot uh, trying to predict second, third, fourth, fifth order of effects is impossible. So let's use first principles, and the first principle for me is the United States of America should be able to do everything in our power to prevent the massacre of innocent people. And so give the Ukrainians as much equipment as they can in order to push the Russians out of their country. And the sooner we do that, the better. Because the longer this conflict goes on, the pressure that Eastern European countries are going to be facing, because they having to deal with a society that's living under the threat of war, the closer you are to Russia, the more impact sanctions and counter sanctions have. And then you're dealing with a growing humanitarian crisis. Uh, Warsaw, one city, Warsaw, Poland, last month increased its population by 14% because of the humanitarian crisis. So the, these, our Eastern European allies now, are going to be dealing with this tension that's going to cause those governments and those people to be frustrated with Ukraine, which we're going to see a tears and tension within the, the Western alliance. And so let's, and that is exactly what, Vladimir Putin wants to see happen. The, the Russians, the Russian population can absorb, you know, um, uh, hardships. The Russian economy is not nearly as bad as it was back in 2008 when the ruble fell. And there's probably four or five people that could um, cause a palace coup against Vladimir Putin. They are in lockstep with Vladimir Putin right now. 
and the, the Russian population is far from turning public opinion into public outrage. And so these are all the things that, that we, have to, we have to be prepared for over the long term that actually impacts us. So give them everything they can, and then be prepared if the Russians want to escalate. Because they're having a hard time in Ukraine with the Ukrainians alone. You want to increase that by having the Poles come in? The Poles have a larger army than the Ukrainians and even more professional. You don't want to see Russian, uh, excuse me, uh, French fighter jets over Ukraine. Macron would probably love that right now to help him in his, in his re-election to show he's being tough. And so, so would the, do, the, do the Russians have the capability to increase the level of destruction we're seeing now? Absolutely, they, they do. On a scale of 1 to 10, they're probably at a 6. What we, see, what we saw happen in Mariupol can continue to happen in other parts of the, of, of the country. And so, so for me, we all, ever since World War II, we've been saying, never again, don't let you know, genocide happen. And every year, something happens somewhere in the world, and we let it happen. And so I believe that we should be giving all the, the, as much heavy equipment that the Ukrainians can absorb. Okay, so you're, you're calling for uh, more and more lethal equipment, but not personnel. Correct. Okay. Uh, I heard a prediction from a, a former member of a, of a German government uh, that said this could well turn out to be something like the troubles in Northern Ireland. Just as vicious, just as violent, just as bitter, and just as long-lasting. Uh, I read today also something else that is sobering, and that is of the wars that have occurred between states, not within states, since World War II, have lasted at least a year, and uh, most for most of those, the average was 10 years. Mm -hmm. Is that what we are looking at? Do you think? I, I think it's somewhere within that. I think it's somewhere within that within that realm, and and if it's lasting 10 years. That's worse for the, the, the Eastern, the, to the European alliance and the transatlantic alliance. And, and so how do we get out of this? What is, is there a scenario? Is there something the Ukrainians are willing to give that the Russians would accept and that Vladimir Putin specifically would see as a face-saving um, measure in order to, to go back home and say, hey, uh, we won? And right now, today, on April, what is this, the 14th, there is nothing. Now, is there a scenario in which um, the United States and some of our allies would be able to provide something to the Russians that they've been asking for for a long time? Maybe. You know, a, a reduction in the nuclear stockpile that's in, that's in Europe if they did something similar in some of their Western territories. Um, they're saber-rattling because of, of Sweden and Finland wanting to come in NATO. So that's where we got to start thinking of what is the off-ramp, what is the diplomatic off-ramp, and we're so far from something. Because the Ukrainian people have made it clear they're not giving up one inch. And the longer this goes, again, those Eastern European countries are going to be like, hey, Crimea, Donbass, the Russians already have it. Just let them keep it. Why are we fighting this war? And the Ukrainian people are going to say, absolutely not. And so, so this is, if, until you have anything close to diplomatic off-ramp, the only way this is going to come to a, 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 a more current or, or quicker resolution is if the Ukrainians do what the Ukrainians can do, and that's continue to, to unleash hell on, on the Russians inside Ukraine. 
Well, let's talk about uh, a little bit of hell in your 23rd district right. down on the border. Right. Uh, you, you've written about immigration right. very persuasively in your book. And uh, I guess if you were in office now, you'd be down there trying to help those trucks uh, get in one mm -hmm. way or another. Uh, and you have a four-point program. Tell us what it is. Sure. Um, look, immigration and border security are, are interrelated. It's an important issue. It's the longest chapter in my book. And look, I, I'm, I'm, I was the only member of Congress when I was in that had ever stamped a visa. Might be the only member of Congress in the history of Congress to have ever stamped visas. That was my day job when I was in the CIA, and I did my real job at night. Right? That was my cover. That was my cover job, and I may or may not have uh, crossed a number of international boundaries illegally. I'm neither confirming or denying um, um, said activity. So I have some experience with this. What we're seeing on the border right now is an absolute crisis. DHS, Department of Homeland Security's predictions, this is their predictions, that coming to the summer, you might start seeing over 400,000 people coming across our border a month illegally. That's a crazy number. That is an absolutely crazy number. And so, so and, and, and how do we deal with this? We deal with this, one, don't treat everybody as an asylum seeker. This was something the last administration did in order to start gumming up the works. Why this administration is continuing this practice, I don't understand. Asylum seekers, it's very clear what you have to do to qualify for asylum. You have to be a member of a protected class, and your government has got to be persecuting you or not protecting you from persecution. That's, that, that, this is the definition of asylum. Coming to look for a good, a good paying job is not criteria for having asylum. So stop treating everybody as an asylum seeker. It is very hard to get from Tegucigalpa to Eagle Pass, Texas. You're using infrastructure to move throughout South and Central America, and now all over the world, in order to get to our southern border. DHS, Department of Homeland Security, has Border Patrol specifically, has collected a lot of this information, and we need to be using more of our intelligence to dismantle these, these, this infrastructure that is in place throughout Central and South America that is moving people to our borders. We gotta begin addressing root causes of these issues. And the majority of the last 20 years, the majority of illegal immigration has come from the Northern Triangle, El Salvador, Guatemala, Honduras, and Mexico. We need to be addressing uh, you know, crime in those communities, lack of economic opportunities in those communities, and abject poverty. And, and that, because we solved that problem, it's a fraction of the cost to solve it there before it gets to our border. Oh, and then streamline legal immigration. In 2022, if Texas needs guest workers or temporary workers in tourism, and Florida needs it in agriculture, and California needs stevedores, we should be able to have a system that is based on supply and demand. And if you streamline legal immigration, Every industry needs more workers, so do that. So, so those are all things that can be done at the same time. Oh, and by the way, this also helps us with the broader challenge that their country is faced with, is what I call a new Cold War with the Chinese government. If the Chinese government is going to steal our technology and intellectual property, let's steal their engineers. If there is some kid from China going to SMU getting a degree in data analytics, when they graduate, let's give them a visa and start making and working at a great company here in the United States and not have to go back to China. And what's the most frustrating thing about all this, everything I just outlined, 
70% of Democratic primary voters agree, and 70% of Republican primary voters agree. And the reason we don't have this stuff solved is because political leaders would rather use this issue as a political bludgeon against each other rather than solving the problem. And that's why so I get worked up on this issue because it's solvable, it's something we can do. And when, you, when I see my, you know, these families and friends that I represent in South and West Texas, border security on the border is not border security, it's public safety. And when you're seeing dozens of people every night going by your home and, and going through your things, you get scared. And, and this is something that, that to me is absolutely outrageous that has, that's been allowed to get to this problem. Well, you have a, it's a terrific four-point program. One is deal with the Dreamers, the DACA program. One is bring in uh, more, uh, more agents, uh, more patrol officers. Third, a very sophisticated uh, border security system, cameras on tall, tall towers, uh, equipped with radar, equipped with artificial intelligence that can tell these officers when some, where someone is, put it on the map, yeah. where to find them. And fourthly, the, the Northern Triangle, as you said. Well, what I didn't find, uh, and it does concern, uh, I am worried about this, are the 11 million people, maybe more now, who have been living in the United States for a very long time. Over 95% of them are working. Some of them serve in the military. Uh, what can be done to bring them into but, the legal world with uh, permanent, uh, Citizenship, sure. of course, a pathway, or uh, permanent residence. If we can't do all those other things, there's no way we're getting to that problem. Like, it, it's, it's just that simple, right? It, it's, it's if you can't deal with DACA, where 75% of Americans believe these kids who have only known the United States of America as their home, if we can't find the political will to solve that problem, there's absolutely no way we're going to address that. And, and, and the issue of the folks that are already here illegally has to be addressed after all these other things that I've talked about. Right? There's, there's no way the political sides are going to be able to deal with it. Now, there's actually a number of programs that conservatives and liberals can agree on on how to deal with this. It's you know, paying fines, coming out of the, the shadows, um, restricting certain things, making sure you don't have um, you know, uh, um, a... a, a a rap sheet, you know, all these things. Like, there's, there's, several, there's several scenarios I've been talking about, but there is no way that any of those issues will, will, will be addressed if you have hundreds of thousands of people still coming, streaming in through the country illegally. So, um, so it's, it's, it's start with these other things that have to be addressed before you get to that piece. Well, let's turn to climate change. You say very plainly there can be no effective fight against climate change without nuclear power. Uh -huh. uh, I wonder, what about the problems in Ukraine with Chernobyl and the Russians playing around that and other nuclear power plants? Has this damaged the cause for nuclear power? Has it damaged the cause? Look, I, I think people are always going to be afraid of something they don't really understand, right? And so, guess what? There, there was the, all the, like, I can make the argument that even in a war, that in a, in a power plant getting shelling from both sides, that it still, you know, didn't, 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 didn't um, uh, break down and, and fall apart, right? We have to have an all-the-above energy strategy in order to address this issue of, of climate change. And it is renewables. You know, I got to see that. I was educated on this. From, from my time in, in, in Congress and what Vistria is, is doing. It is nuclear. It is new technologies to help with carbon capture. But also, it's a mindset. And, and I try to explain 
uh, to people. This is not about us hurting the planet. Mother Nature is undefeated. This is about us doing something to cause Mother Nature and Mother Earth to hurt us. There have been five extinct mass extinction events on Earth. We're in the middle of a sixth. And if we don't do something, it's going to be about us becoming extinct, not about Earth becoming extinct. And so this is about protecting ourselves. And, and, and I think that reorientation, the one positive thing I have about this, you know, I'm, I'm on college campuses a lot. It, it, most, most conservatives, even if they're under 35, if they're under the age of 35, they're concerned about this issue. And so it's going to be, it's going to be um, the Gen Zs and the folks after them that, are going to, that we're going to see some of these changes. And I also think technology is going to help us um, uh, adapt to getting to a, a, net zero, um, a net zero emissions uh, around the world. Well, I was on my famous Zoom call yesterday. There was one guy who said, I, I hope it's true, uh, that there is new technology for nuclear power plants. You, you would know it, Mr. Rebecca. Uh, they're much smaller. Not much smaller, smaller, and, and built with a pool around them, a pool of water that can shut down the uh, uh, the facility if indeed trouble erupts. So I hope that's true. Uh, you may have known when you were in the CIA a, a guy named Greg Treverton. He was running the National Intelligence Council. Mm -hmm. This was in the uh, Obama administration. Mm -hmm. And uh, he's now back at the University of Southern California. He presided over the Global Trends Report, which comes out every four years, came out last year. And he was preparing the one for 2017. And even in 2015 and 2016, he said he could see rumblings of civil war in the nation. Uh, but he said there won't be a third battle of Manassas. I mean, just as well, the first and second battles didn't go well for the Union in Virginia. Uh, instead, it will be a battle of lawyers and secessionists, finally leading to a much looser federation, uh, the sort that the founders envisioned perhaps in 1789. Uh, can you imagine that? I understand why people like that talk about that. But I've seen an exact opposite experience. My experience is going from the Colonias in El Paso. And, and, if, and if, if you don't know what that is, think of a favela in Brazil, to the ritziest parts of San Antonio, Texas, where the San Antonio Spurs live. And I have found that all the, in, in, in everything in between, people bring up the exact same issues. They care about putting food on the table, a roof over their head, and taking care of the people. That, and make sure the people they love are healthy, happy, and safe. And so this frustration that many of these people are talking about as, as a, as a, as a cons with a negative consequence of being civil war is an erosion of trust in a good majority of our society at every levels of society, whether it's government, federal, state, local level, whether it's academia, media, every entity and institution that is vital to making a, a robust and vibrant democracy has lost trust. The only entities that have any kind of continued level of trust is business. And that's partly because they're providing a good or service, and it's either good or it's not. And so, so this frustration has, has manifested in a number of different ways. And so that, but, but I've seen, and, and some say, hey, you know, you know, this is a little Pollyanna-ish, but way more unites us than divides us. And when we talk about those things, 
then people are like, yeah, they all shake their heads. And so this, and, and so, so do I understand why people are pointing to some of the stuff about civil war? But that's not, that's, not, that's not what I've seen. And I've seen that across the country as well, too. And, and when 72% of Americans are concerned with the direction the country is going, which is a number that has been growing over the years, that means they're ready for something different. And, and if you provide them something different, if you inspire, we all want to believe in something larger than ourselves. And that's where the opportunity is. Could things completely degrade? Uh, I can create a scenario in which that happens. But I think it's more likely that the, 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 the majority middle finally says, enough is enough. And we need some rational, thoughtful people in order to make sure that we continue to keep this country going in the direction that we've been on for 247 years. Sounds very good and a good moment to turn to all of you. Uh, and I would like to say I have a friend who says you need now disguise your comment as a question. So uh, <laughs> whatever, uh, whatever you want to say. Yeah. Yes. You can yell it out or we're going to, um, Oh, I think they're getting microphones. Yeah, we got some over here, yeah. Um, so my question is about um, Syria. Your uh, um, colleague and former presidential candidate Evan McMullen did a TED talk about the atrocities that Assad committed in Syria, um, which are uh, rather serious. So what would a President Heard have mm. done if we could go back in time? Is there something that we could have done to stop that? So this is one area where I actually advocated for regime change. Any entity, any person that is willing to use chemical weapons on their own people is just unacceptable. And, and would the next thing come in be worse? I don't know how worse you can get than Bashar al-Assad. <clears throat> and what makes <clears throat> all of this bad is when he first came in, the world was like, hooray. He was an ophthalmologist, educated in London, you know, he wore swanky suits. Everybody's like, this is going to be a huge change in the region. And it wasn't. And so, so, for, so for me, it was support the opposition in that region. Yes, we haven't had a, a great history in, 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 in these kinds of wars in that part of the world. But anybody who uses chemical weapons on their own people and then continue to do that over time, Right? And I think, I think bef there is a lot more of our air power we could have be, been using. I think um, President Obama not enforcing the red line was, uh, was a, a um, that was the beginning of the end of kind of our, our role there. I think this was, actually could have been an opportunity for us to have worked and cooperated with the Russians on, on addressing the issue in there. Sounds crazy, but there was, there was a glimmer. Um, just like in Ukraine right now, the Chinese have an opportunity to come in and try to negotiate between the Ukrainians and the, and, and the Russians. If I was advising Xi Jinping and knowing where they want to go, that's something that they should, that sh they should think about. So yeah, so Syria, it's still, it's still chaos that's going in there. This is still a humanitarian a crisis there. Uh, the, the amount of, of, of kids in Yemen that are, are, are going hungry you know, Yemen is a catastrophe, and, and, and we're not talking about that. 
And so, so yeah, so those are some things like, it, 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 look, that is years later, trying to think about something on the, on the ground, but there was a number of military steps that we could have done in order to help the opposition that we knew that were happening, um, in that, that were involved there in, in Syria. Anybody else? Yes. Yeah, this guy there. Thanks for being here this evening. Yeah. We appreciate you coming to Dallas. While we're appropriately focusing on Putin and Russia with all of our might, what is China doing to us yeah, right now? Sure. Look, this is, this is, to me, the greatest threat to America is China. And, and the Chinese government, make it clear, Chinese government. It's not the Chinese people. It's definitely not Chinese Americans, right? It's, it's, it's the, the, the amount of hate that our Asian American brothers and sisters have seen in this country the last couple of years is, is unacceptable to me. And so when I say China, I'm speaking of specifically the Chinese government. The Chinese government has made it clear that they're trying to surpass the United States of America as a sole superpower. This is not my opinion. This is not me laying in bed at night, you know, wondering what's happening in the world. This is not, you know, me collecting intelligence you know, when I was in the CIA. This is what the Chinese government has said about themselves in English. And they're going to do this by being the global leader in a number of advanced technologies. 5G, artificial intelligence, quantum computing, hypersonics, space, um, biotech. There's about 12, 14, 16 different areas that they're going to stay focused. And, and for them, they are trying, and, and look, we can, to, we can coexist. The United States and China were frenemies. Our economies are intertwined in a way that us and the Soviets never were and us and the Russians never have been. Our, our cultures are intertwined in a way that America and the Soviet Union. But the difference is the Chinese economy is going to be larger than the American economy. The Chinese population is larger than the American, than, than the American population. This is the difference between this Cold War than it was with, with the Russians. And then, you know, this is the only thing I think I agree with Vladimir Putin on. In 2014, he said, whoever masters AI masters the world. Why do he say that? That the tool of artificial intelligence is going to be so powerful that whoever gets to what I call you know, intelligent artificial intelligence, or the, the industry term is AGI, artificial general intelligence, whoever gets to that power first has such a first mover advantage that second place doesn't mean anything. And we know how the Chinese government is going to use these tools. Because they're already using it right now against the, the Uyghur, their ethnic minority population in Xinjiang province, in order to put these people in, in, in internment camps. We know the kind of technology that they're exporting to other authoritarian regimes uh, around the world. And so this is going to be whether, whether this is a moment in 436 a AD, when a bunch of Romans woke up and the, and the Western Roman Empire fell, and they're all like, what the heck is a Goth? <laughs> right? The Goths had been around uh, the periphery of the Western Roman Empire for uh, about uh, 50 years, almost 100 years. And they led to, to the collapse of, of the Western Roman Empire, and nobody in Rome thought that was, happen, was, was possible. That's how serious we are right now, but guess what? I'm going to put my money on 
on innovation, entrepreneurship, creativity, freedom, any day of the week. However, an authoritarian government can get somewhere first. And so these areas around technology and technology's role in society, these are complicated issues that require real competition of ideas. And the fact that we can't have those kinds of conversations because of the nonsense in our political structure is preventing us from having the public sector and the private sector work together to solve these challenges. I'm on the board of a company that we just introduced a tool where you can write a sentence, a text, and say, create an impressionist version of the Mona Lisa as if it was painted in watercolor. And it spits out 20 new images. It didn't search the internet for that. It created a new image pixel by pixel. Now, it's pretty cool. If I'm some kid that wants to create a comic book but I don't know how to draw, now I have a new assistant. But it's also something that can create a real deep fake, which is, you know, it, now we try to put security uh, around preventing that, this tool from being used that way. But you think the Chinese government cares? Absolutely not. You think the influence the Russians tried to do in our 2016 elections by text and pictures, you think that was bad? Wait until you're able to do this with moving video and create a new thing out of the sky. These are, these are crazy, complicated issues that we have to deal with. The Chinese now, the Chinese government is building satellites that have a claw. There's only one reason you need a satellite with a claw on it. You're gonna damage something else in the space, right? Ours. And the, the role space plays in terrestrial activities, you know, we would all be shocked to think of all the things that we need space for, right? The, these are complicated, wow, this, I don't even get into quantum computing. But this is, what, this, is, this is how the Chinese are, are setting things up. Oh, and by the way, last point, sorry, I get excited on this one. <laughs> the young girl from California that, that in the Olympics, um, the skier. Now, look, I, I don't care what, what an 18-year-old decision an 18-year-old makes, okay, Let me be honest. But what we should be caring about is why did Xi Jinping put the full court press on getting this young California girl to wear the uniform of the Chinese government. He knew the impact that would have, not only in his own home country. He knew that growing Chinese soft power is another way for them to achieve their end. Oh, and by the way, they want to do this by 2049. Like that, that's, that is literally their, their end point on, on how to do all this. And they're watching what's happening in Ukraine so they can invade Taiwan. This is not about whether, this, this is about when they invade Taiwan. And why should we care as Americans? Because of when the Chinese invade Taiwan, they're gonna own 70% of the capability to produce semiconductors. Semiconductors is the building block of every piece of technology. Not just your fancy car or your smartphone, but your refrigerator. So if you think supply chain issues are bad now, wait until the Chinese government goes into Taiwan. If you think the price of stuff is bad now, wait until, wait until they do that. Right? This, is, this is how, the, how big of a deal things are. And, and we're going to have to wake up. Sorry for the long one answer. I'll, I'll keep them shorter. Yeah. Yes. Yes, anybody uh, want to speak to waking up?
Do you think that there will be another agreement with Iran? And mm. if so, what should a new agreement with Iran include that wasn't in the JCPOA? So, um, I think a, a new agreement with Iran right now, uh, two months ago, it was almost inked. Now, um, the, J the problem with the JCPOA is it didn't do enough. It only addressed one problem when it came to, to Iran, and that was their nuclear, their nuclear facilities. It, does, it had nothing to do with um, them destabilizing the rest of the region, primarily our, our, our most important ally, Israel. It had nothing to do with the Iranian support to um, terrorist organizations all around the world. They are the largest state sponsor of terrorism in the world. It had nothing to do with addressing those things. And so you can't have a, a deal that focuses only one aspect of the relationship that is going to allow the Iranians to reduce all the sanctions that is hurting them from continuing work in those other areas. So the, the, the JCPOA was too narrow in looking at the relationship with Iran. That's, that's the problem. And, and then I also have a problem with saying, okay, they're not going to do anything for 10 years. And then, in, and then a decade, they can do whatever they want? What? That's, that doesn't sound like a smart idea. And, so, and, and then the notion is, oh, they're going to love all the support and love they're getting. They're going to love the civil power that the Russians are building for them. They're going to love all these things. And you know what? All this saber rattling, they're not going to do that anymore. Come on. The Iranians wouldn't do that for 10 years. What did our Israeli uh, brothers and sisters find out? They had been lying the entire time they were negotiating the JCPOA on the things that they were supposed to be doing. Like, it, it's, it's insane. And so... so do we, you know, it'd be great to keep Iran from having nuclear weapons. It'd be great to have Iran. I would love to go to Tehran someday. But we have to address those other elements of, of the Iranian um, um, destabilizing the region and the rest of the world and, 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 and deal with the nuclear program well. Now, here is where the administration time would be better spent. Out of the 190 countries in NATO, excuse me, in the UN, 140 are not supporting global um, um, economic sanctions on Russia. When you see the map, the world map of who's not supporting sanctions, it's scary. It's basically the entire Western Hemisphere, most of the Middle East, and most of the, the only people that are supporting is Europe and, and Japan, Canada. So. So we should be working with all the rest of our allies to prepare for this long war, the one to 10 year lead that you were talking about. That's where some of that, that energy and, and effort um, should be spent. Also, when we're dealing with an energy battle, maybe you don't want to, to upset some of our key allies in the region. The fact that the Saudis were talking about selling um, uh, oil to the Chinese in the renminbi is, is like, that, is, that has huge 
consequences to the power of the dollar. And so all of these things are interrelated and trying to focus on this just because you want a deal? The goal is not the deal. The goal is not to be like the one of those weird pictures where everybody shakes like this, right? The goal is to actually get Iran to operate like a normal country. I think it was that. Is that, is that the, is that the heave-ho? You know, yeah. Um, yeah, I think, I think we got one more. Yeah, I think we got one more. Yeah. Thank you. You talked a little bit earlier about the primary process when it comes mm -hmm. to the House, but I want to talk presidential politics mm -hmm. a little bit. And what would it take in 2024 for a moderate Republican, and I know you're not going to make history tonight by making an announcement, but just any random moderate Republican to get through the gauntlet that is the Republican primary process in 24? $150 million. <laughs> No, yeah, no. That's like, like to start. That's that's starting capital, 150 million dollars. And 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 look, I know how to talk to. So 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 the professional political class. I'll keep this short, y'all, and then and then and then wrap it up with a final point. The professional political class wants to talk to likely primary voters. In, in politics, we talk about four fours. Somebody who voted in four of the last four Republican primaries or four of the last four Democratic primaries. I know how to talk to four or four Republicans. Nancy Pelosi's coming for your guns. I know how to talk to four or four Democrats. Donald Trump's coming back and he's gonna dump barrels of oil in the ocean. Right? Like that, that's how some of these folks get motivated. Those people that I talked about at the beginning who vote in primaries, vote in general elections but don't vote in primaries, I can, I can think that there's probably 13 or 14 reasons why they don't, and there's probably the same number of equal reasons why they would. But when the entire political infrastructure is not focusing on that, you've got to do some work and build some infrastructure in order to be able to talk to those people. Because guess what? They're also not watching cable news, 14% you know, of the population watch cable news. Another 14%, and it's probably an overlap, fool around on, on social media right, to get their news, to get their news and understanding of, 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 um, of politics. Right? So there's different ways you've got to talk and, and move those kind of voters. And that requires uh, infrastructure, and that's why you need $150 million. Now here's why someone needs to do this. America has become an exceptional nation, not because of what we have taken, but because of what we have given. We have become an exceptional nation because we did things like offered a helping hand to Europe after World War II. We helped countries rebuild after uh, natural disasters that kills hundreds of thousands of people. But we have also given people the, the, how your values and building a government around our values matters. We talk about this experiment called America. Why do we say it's an experiment? Because nobody thought it was going to work when we started it. We were the only democracy at the time. It was another 60 years for another democracy to happen. That was Switzerland. There were only 14 countries that have been a democracy for more than 100 years. Democracy is fragile, and it always has been. But guess what? For 247 years, 
This has turned this little place called America into the most powerful country in the world, the most important economy in the world. Oh, and by the way, we have helped uplift humanity. Yes, we are far from being that more perfect union, but we need people that are willing to say, hey, things need to be different. We don't have to accept the way things are because the way things are are not working and it's not good. So I hope someone's able to get $150 million to try to do this thing because we need it because I want to make sure that the rest of this century stays the American century. Okay, we've talked about normal Republicans, a normal Iran, a normal billionaire that we hope will put up $150 million, which is nothing to that person. And now to Liz Brailsford. Thank you, Will Hearn. Thank you. Okay, well, that was fabulous. I knew it would be. Thank you so much for joining us this evening. Mm. Uh, I know you all want to read this book, American Reboot. We are selling it here this evening. You can pick it up right over here from our bookstore partners in Terabang Books. Thank you again for being here. And uh, be our member, truly. It means a lot to me. It means a lot to my staff, our board. Dave Jacobs, share hello. Thank you, Sarah Dodd. Thank you so much for coming. But we really want you to be a part of our, our community. So anyway, thanks again for joining us this evening. Come to our programs next week, next couple of weeks. Thank you again, Lee. Always a pleasure. Looks like you won a lot of votes. <laughs> thank you. Yeah, thank you.